My name is Erin Bross, and this is The Dirt, Confessions of a Tree Planter. Art for this podcast comes from another tree planter, Bethany Davis, as part of her illustration series, Follow the Trees. This is a podcast about tree planting as a reforestation practice in the silviculture industry. Tree planters are a collective of people who spend much of their lives replenishing a logged area with new forest. However, tree planting is so much more than the physical act of planting thousands of seedlings in the ground day after day as a job. It is about the connections, experiences, bonds, and memories that last a lifetime. The dirt is a place to shed light on the culture that is mostly contained within those who have stuck a shovel in the ground. It is meant to dive deep into all things tree planting as a place for those to reminisce, relate, or to learn. So wherever you're coming from, as any tree planter would say, may the planting gods be with you. Hey folks, so I have another pretty important episode for you guys, or at least I think it is. Um, And it's actually with uh, my boss, um, Scott Lemke. And uh, yeah, so we get into just like Scott's career, which I think is a little bit of a of a unique one as well, because, you know, I've even been a person who has kind of been with this mentality of sort of needing to do your time sort of through the roles in the industry to kind of get to higher management roles and places like owning a company and stuff. But, you know, really talking with Scott and hearing more of his story, you know, I understand it's not always the path for everyone. Um, because, you know, if you listen here into the interview, um, Scott got into management like pretty quickly and it's definitely, you know, just a part of who he is and definitely that challenge for him. And I think, you know, I know of other people in the industry who have similar, similar character traits as him. And I can see, you know, those similar, similar paths potentially, um, for those people. And so it was kind of eye opening for me and, uh, you know, maybe for anyone else who listens to this might resonate with this. I hope it can actually provide a lot of really good advice and guidance for people who are interested in getting more into like a supervisory role or yeah, like buying into a company, managing a company, doing these kinds of things. And so, yeah, we kind of get into kind of Scott's planting career, just his time, um, like as a planter and in management, and then also sort of moving into the roles he's in now and just how important you know, things like the mentorship process are. So I think this is actually a great episode as well for anyone who is interested in getting into those roles to just learn a little bit more about kind of the processes on how to go about doing that um, because this really is a small industry and uh, yeah, integrity and, you know, respect and just like your reputation really go a very long way here. And um, so we talk a bit about that. And then we kind of switch gears and we talk a lot about, yeah, just the coastal contracting scene. You know, I feel like it's something that really a lot of the community here are people who just stay in the interior, don't really know about as much. And so it's something I've really been wanting to cover on the podcast, especially because it's, you know, a part of my livelihood and and many other people around me. And um, it's a bit of a different beast out here. So, yeah, we kind of talk about what the coastal contracting scene is like, how it's set up, which is in some ways quite different from the interior um, and how, you know, a lot of us are these yeah small coastal companies. And yeah, it's like a lot of people working from home and having families and just, you know, it's just a bit of a different dynamic. And so, yeah, we talk about kind of some of the issues that have been facing the coast recently. And so, yeah, like some pretty... Um, open, candid conversations we have here about things that have been going on 
you know, for Scott, for myself, and for lots of other people, really, in the last, like, six months, um, some of the main issues um, and challenges that are currently facing the coast right now, um, and just, like, small contractors on the coast in general. So I think this is a really important episode just for, like, transparency around what's actually been going on. And, yeah, it's sort of this, like, echoing of, you know, that conversation I had with Everett a couple weeks ago of really being aware of, like, the dynamics of... And, you know, just the approaches that the companies you're working for have and whether or not you agree with them. And, yeah, putting putting your money where your mouth is, putting your shovels, you know, where there are places of, you know, integrity and respect and, you know, these kinds of values that we clearly want in planting companies. And, you know, that's only going to happen if we put the support there, if we put our shovels there. So please uh, share around. And, um, yeah, I hope for anyone who's not in the coastal scene, this is a good insight hope for all of us that are that it yeah just kind of gives us a voice as well in this industry which uh, I feel very strongly about so enjoy this and uh, see you next week okay Scott welcome thanks for having me Erin yeah thank you uh, and your you know busy schedule these days ramping up yeah, yeah, we are getting busy for sure. This is going to be a nice uh, 2021 warm start, I'm thinking. Yeah, okay. So, you know, obviously I know you very well, but um, the listeners may not. So why don't you just tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Okay, um, this will be my 21st year uh, involved in silviculture and tree planting. Um, I have been planting most uh, probably... 12 years and then in middle management for seven years and now I'm a I'm a part owner of a planting company on Vancouver Island out of Port Alberni. Okay and so how did you get into tree planting initially? Um, a younger friend of mine from high school uh, went planting in, uh, in 2000 and then they called me and said you got to come planting with me in 2001 you'll love it. And it was a really remote show, really small company. There was like nine tree planters and we were just kind of left alone in the bush to, to do our thing, sort of. So it was a cool experience, uh, a cool introduction into tree planting for sure. Yeah, no, it sounds definitely like a little bit more old school, even for 2000. Um, yeah. yeah. How was your, you know, I'm curious too, I like knowing people's backgrounds a little bit going into planting because obviously you know your buddy's like oh yeah this is sick you need to come um how did that go for you first season showing up there especially obviously kind of being in the middle of nowhere like were you much of an outdoorsy person um how did that go for you yeah i've uh, always been on the more athletic side growing up in high school um i graduated when i was 18 in year uh, in 2000 and then immediately flew to south america and did like six months backpacking came back and sort of um same thing didn't really know what i wanted to do and then my my friend was going away planting again and she knew that i was going to enjoy it so i rented a van off a friend and two of my close buddies we drove north and so it was like a backpacking adventure except we got to learn to plant trees and and live in the outdoors. Um, my first day, I drove the work truck the 30 kilometers to the reefer with the e-brake on. Oh my um, parked it, <laughs> yeah, parked it, and the, the truck caught fire uh, right there at the reefer, and I was demoted to not being able to drive. And the very next year, the guy had hired me to 
um, to crew boss and run the camp. Like I said, it was like 12 people at its like height, but we were six or eight hours north of Prince George, you know, in the bush, logging roads, that sort of thing. So we were super remote. Um, so I went from like letting the truck on fire to like the next year, like running the camp and then did that for a couple of years until it got too stressful and then went back to planting for, for close to a decade before I sort of moved up again. I'm curious too about that because I know like myself personally, I've dabbled in management and also defaulted maybe forever, maybe not, I don't know, to go back to planting as well. Just like the, yeah, yeah the amount of responsibility is just so much more chill. So talk a little bit about that because it sounds like you really started planting and then kind of jumped into management right away. So like what was the reasons and behind that and everything? Um, yeah, I guess like I don't, I didn't see it in myself when I was younger, but I guess I was exhibiting leadership skills. I've got the ability to kind of get people on board and I have a, a mother bear instinct as well to look after people um, or at least to, uh, to be worried about other people's well-being. So that I think that translated well in those early years when we were just a bunch of 20 and 21 year old kids that somebody actually kind of you know, stood out as wanting to be a bit more of a, of a role model and leader. Um, and I think that's eventually why my current business partner decided that he wanted, or that he wanted to ask me to, uh, to buy into the company. He could see that uh, I was thriving on more responsibility and I could handle it. So, and I, like yourself, I've gone up and down with it. it in, in the first three years by the, or my, in my fourth year, I ran, two trucks and I ran four foremen and I supervised and foreman at the same time and it was way too much I I still remember we were staying in the dorms at UNBC in Prince George and after a particularly stressful week I was also studying to get my class four so I could drive the crummy bus and I was you know like I said running multiple people organizing trees that sort of thing and I'm in the shower and I'm tense as hell and I'm just letting the hot water run on my head and my friend opens the door and blows an air horn off in the shower. And I fucking lost my mind. I came screaming out of the naked and I was like, you fucking asshole. You don't know what I'm under. And I was like, cry, rage, yelling, you know? Yeah. And I immediately just dropped everything, drove to the pub, had a beer and was like, this is my last year doing this. Like this way too stressful. So I stayed away from it for a long time, then got into you know, into driving again, and then got into middle management, thought for a while I wanted to own a company. And then I looked at my current business partner a few years ago and was like, wow, he's stressed. There's no way I want to do this. And uh, then I just realized I'm getting older and I have this opportunity <laughs> and it's totally worth taking. And I'm very glad I did because um, at some point I would have been bored just running crews. I would have become a maybe more of a surly um, not so fun foreman because I'm, you know, I'm not being challenged enough. Uh, like I'm getting challenged now as a, as a business owner. So how did you, in terms of being challenged, like, did you find that you had that with planting or then you needed that evolution? Um, cause yeah, when you returned to planting, you returned there for a while. So yeah, I definitely, I, instead of going back up North to, to plant again, I went down and worked the Kootenays for a number of years where it was more challenging and I'm always, I was always the person trying to break my own personal best and also trying to be one step ahead of the next person. Uh, I was never the top baller in a, in a company. I, you know, I was always third or fourth down the line, but I prided myself on consistency and good trees and, you know, really going after hard land and making money in it because to show other planters that it's, 
you can make money in any kind of land depending on depending on your attitude and the way you want to approach it so I felt really challenged with that and then I got it like I said got into driving because it was a whole new element being able to have my own truck and my own trees in it and like I would be the last to be cut in but I would always try to be you know the highest planter that day just to again prove the point that it's more about your attitude and the way you handle the land than it is about you know the 10 minute difference of the last person and you get cut in so those are always the challenges I like to uh to approach as a planter um but then I got old you know I, I did stupid things I begged heavy and worked too fast and I never thought about my long-term uh, physical self and I just got to the point where I knew I was way less enthusiastic about bagging up and going up that hill or down that hill than I was about taking on a crew of people and you know trying to uplift them into making money in the same way that I was able to make money so that's where I I challenged myself again as becoming a crew boss was is trying to get that cohesiveness up in a crew and everybody's having a good day because you've got the attitude to sort of keep everyone together and, and you know teaching people how to make money was really was really great for me for a long time as well so yeah I'm curious as well if at any point especially when your body was starting to you know break basically um like ha had you ever considered getting out of it you know like exiting did you try to do that I'm curious if you had tried to ever kind of chase any other paths or just once planting came into your life that was just something you kind of saw yourself doing yeah, uh, a few times I attempted exit strategies. Um, a few times. I can't remember what the year it was, but I, I think I was 26, 27. I've been planting for five or six years. And I took a farming apprenticeship on Cortez Island for a year. And then I stayed an additional year on the island, just kind of like doing other things, construction, carpentry and stuff like that. Um, in my early 20s, on uh, my second winter um, of my second season of tree planting, I chased a girl to Toronto who was taking her nursing certificate there. And I learned carpentry for, oh, I took like a five-month uh, apprenticeship program and then started to practice carpentry every winter after that. And that was going to always kind of be a fallback of mine if I, if I ever wanted to. I really enjoy woodworking, building furniture and that sort of thing now. So, and um, one winter I went back and upgraded a bunch of high school courses and was also going to take a nursing degree. This was about five years ago or so. I thought I'd really like to get into healthcare because of like I was talking about that compassionate side of mine. Um, but then just found I wasn't interested in sciences like I thought I was going to be interested in. And I really realized how much poop was involved with being a healthcare <laughs> professional and decided I didn't want to take that route either so I kind of was lost for a year or so and and that's sort of when my 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 current business partner started to talk about um the benefits of buying into the company and the lifestyle that it uh, that it provides a, a person so so kind of a segue from that question um how has mm -hmm. tree planting changed or impacted your life well, I feel like I've lived a pretty blessed life. I'm pretty free from a lot of, I think, uh, hangups, a lot of uh, maybe nine to fibers, we'll call them, would end up in. People that have had to shell out thousands of dollars for, for an education and to find themselves maybe not in the field that they, they once anticipated being in. I've learned to live without an income for several months a year, which is, I think, a skill that a lot of people should learn 
Mm. Learn about, you know, you don't panic when there's no work. You find a hobby or you find something you love to do. And, and that's how you fill your time as opposed to maybe trying to hunt work down or, you know, just continue, you know, it's a new thing with tree planters. I find these days is like, they want to keep working and working longer seasons, more consistent. And it was different when I started, it was like, Hey, I only have to work three months out of the year. And the, those other nine months I'm broke and traveling, but that, that was the way I wanted to live. Maybe a lot of us as tree planters are getting older. And so that's why we want more of that work consistency, but tree planting has afforded me all of my, uh, my riches. I've traveled you know, over a third of the planet. Um, and I'm 38 now. So you know, I started traveling 18 years ago. And tree planting's funded that now I'm a homeowner and a business owner. Um, and tree planting has funded that it's given me security in my life. It's given me a new love for the outdoors. You know, I got to go to places, even just in my work day that people don't get to go and see and I really appreciate that. And uh, helps. it's been great for my dogs. I love having dogs in the bush. And, you know, that's a big part of my lifestyle, too. So I get to carry them around with me everywhere I go. So, Yeah. So, you know, in terms of your fairly sizable career, that's been, yeah, kind of delving in all these different aspects. Um, I mean, I guess it doesn't necessarily have to be specifically to planting. I'll let you sort of like go with this for these next two questions. Um, and I encourage you not to overthink them. Um, what is your favorite tree planting memory? Oh, um, hmm. I, I remember this always sticks out in my mind. My, in my first year ever, uh, I was mentioning how the boss, he wasn't up there very much. You know, he was, you know, shuttling trees back and forth like once a week. But other than that, he was never around. We didn't get to know him very much. And close to the end of the, the first uh, the first scene there, he showed up with a bottle of Valentine's uh, disgusting scotch. And like I said, a bunch of, you know, there's eight 20 year olds up there, you know, we're not scotch drinkers. We're like, you know, we're just kind of goofball. <laughs> and he sits down at the fire with us, takes a sip and passes the bottle, takes a sip. You know, we kind of go around the go around the fire once we go around twice we go around three times and the bottle was empty and I was like oh it was disgusting and I just remember all of a sudden he kind of looked up from this this scotch haziness and people had just been disappearing from the fire to their tents because they're like they couldn't handle it they were all this these young 20 year old rookies like sick on scotch after three mouthfuls and and had passed out in the tent it was really early night I remember and the boss is just laughing like aha you guys are you guys are new to this whole thing so I mean if there's like any type of scotch to like put on a bunch of 20 year olds it's probably like the cheapest most disgusting kind so <laughs> don't want to waste the good stuff <laughs> yeah, I think it was supposed to be a thank you and it just totally destroyed us pretty hard like what happened last night what was that alcohol yeah. <laughs> um so with that being said uh what's your worst tree planting memory uh Another one that is not planting associated, um, working here out of Port Alberni one year, um, with, I was dating this woman for, we were together for probably four years at this point. We had met planting. Um, it was sort of mid twenties, you know, five years in or six years in, lots of partying that those years, you know, working for some shadier companies with lower prices, tough land. And so, you know, the parties were really the, the reason people were coming to work for these guys. 
And uh, we finished a contract and we were so unhappy with the way things had gone. We were melting chairs and fires. We were throwing full rounds of wood into the fire and tons of wax boxes. And it was just a disgusting mess. Um, everybody was high on drugs and drunk. And my partner decided she was going to jump the fire. And she, we, I told her, and my friend told her, like, that's not a good idea. You know, we're having a good time. It's, you know, it's three in the morning. And she's, yeah, I'm going to jump it. And she jumped it. And because of all the rounds of wood in the fire, you couldn't see them. They were, they were under the wax boxes. She fell through the fire. Oh, no. She came over the other side. And I walked over to her. She's on her, like, hands and knees, sort of, or on her stomach. And I said, well, that wasn't a good idea, was it? And she looked at me and raised her arms and said, I'm burning. And I looked at her arms and they just looked covered in ash. And I was like, oh shit. So we got her up to the cook tent under the lights. And it wasn't ash, it was plastic from her fingertips to her elbows. She oh, braced herself going through the fire and just had gotten coated in wax and plastic. So I took a, like, I was immediately, I'm like, oh my God, you know, I go to, you know, touch her and her skin slaps off. Like this fine layer of skin that just leaves this white layer underneath. And I was like, Oh, Jesus Christ. So we called the ambulance right away. And um, the ambulance said, call a taxi. You know, we were, we were 15 minutes outside of Port Alberni or something, or 20 minutes outside of Port Alberni. So me and a friend got her into the vehicle and we took her to the hospital. And at this point, she's so uncooperative. She's coming down from drugs and alcohol. She's wandering through the hospital, screaming at the nurses. And my friend and I, we're sitting in the waiting room just having to listen to this whole thing and you know they the nurses wouldn't let her in there let, wouldn't let us in there to calm her down and they said that until she comes down they can't help her so eventually they send the the doctor comes out and says you should go home and get some sleep you're gonna have to look after this person tomorrow she's gonna be in really rough shape you know she's got a lot of plastic we're gonna have to like clean off of her so I showed up the next day went home and cried in my tent for like four hours packed everything up in the morning went back to the to the hospital and she comes out bandaged from fingertip to elbow and just loaded on painkillers can't wipe her butt can't hold a drink is totally like in la la land you know and she's from ontario and i'm like geez i can't i can't look after this person right now so after a couple of days she kind of came down from everything and um went back to the hospital got cleaned up again one more time and she had to fly back to ontario for a few weeks to uh to look after herself so it was a terrible way to end a long fall contract a shitty fall contract and kind of left a bad taste in my mouth for bush bush parties afterwards you know yeah no it's something that we don't i mean that's the reason why we love box fires so much right is like oh that like wax coating it's like big hot fire super crazy like awesome and i mean also disgusting bad for the environment but like we burn them anyways and um i've seen so many people like jump through fires as well like it's such a thing that people like to do and uh yeah you don't like think about like that coating aspect and like once it's you know wax and a candle drip so it's like once it's on it's like on and with your skin it's not like a hard surface so like what degree of burn did she have then like probably pretty they varied. yeah they varied from first degree to third degree and she still yeah. has a quite a vicious scar on her outer arm where i had actually taken the skin off by accident when i like touched her arm you know like we were running cold water on her and i just was like you know stoned and drunk and like what is that and just I, i'll never forget it it just came off like um yeah like the skin on a latte sort of oh, thing man. you know yeah disgusting yeah yeah 
Okay, yeah, that's a pretty bad one. Yeah, it was it was a bad bad time for sure. Yeah. So, you know, before we kind of like segue here a little bit, um, I mean, I feel like this is kind of a, a hard question perhaps, but it's like, you know, moving forward, obviously you've spent, you know, a couple decades now here and you're sort of building a life within this like new realm, um, you know, as a co-owner. And so looking forward into the future, like, is this something that you see yourself probably doing for a while and kind of evolving and growing with and, and building in terms of that challenge too, of, of being uh, like an owner now? Yeah, I intend to grow the business, um, hopefully for the next, I've been involved with it for two years now. This will be my third year. And yeah, I intend to grow the business for at least another five years and get it to a point that I think um, we can steady off a little bit. I think a silviculture company can do a lot of things um, if it grows roots in the right place. And I think where we're at right now is the right place. Um, so that's my intention. And then at some point I want to be able to do what my business partner is doing right now is taking a step back, um, reaping some of the benefits of the last 15 years that he's put into the company, um, taking a bit of a breather, but still having a, a you know, somewhat hands-on approach, you know, starting to kind of take a, a 50% retirement sort of, you know, or you're, you're only working when you want to, when you want to do it. And I want to train some people into middle management positions and kind of bring them up out of like just the, the planting part of it. You know, I think that there's some good people out there that are going to age out and they, they may not age out well if they don't have the options. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'd like to see because with good middle management, you can mm -hmm. do a lot of cool things with, uh, with a business like this. So, yeah, yeah. And no, this is a, you know, a good point to bring up too that I've discussed a little bit with some people on here and just, but I know a lot of people too, who, uh, you know, want to run their own little shows and do these things and whatnot and don't really realize um, it's like pretty fucking exhausting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's um, I was talking with a friend last night, actually, that's got this opportunity. He's was doing some uh, beetle survey work and, and that fella really liked his, his caliber work. just the two of them working in this, in his company. He said, hey, if you want to use the company name and title to go bid on things, like, why don't you explore that option? And I think if anybody offers you that, you should use it because it really lets you get your, your feet wet without having all of the um, exposure and all of the vulnerability. Um, that's sort of what my, uh, my partner did before I put some money down to, to get into the company was he let me run like a little brushing contract to see what it was like, you know, doing payroll and working you know, five hours more than everyone else every day, you know, in the morning and in the evening and that sort of thing. And so that gave me my experience to like, oh, I can do this. It's stressful, but I like it. And then it gave me, uh, yeah, more of a footing when I did take, start to take on more responsibility and more roles. I wasn't like, I was totally new to it at that point. Yeah, you know, and especially for people, yeah, who are maybe looking to do that, who are maybe a bit more ambitious as well um wanting to like take on those extra responsibilities kind of like you have within your career too that challenge is that something that you would recommend then kind of doing it yeah like under you know if that their offer is there under like a company name to do some bidding there and to kind of start within something else rather than just kind of oh I'm going to start my own company and I'm just going to like start bidding on stuff um yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's extremely difficult. I mean, reputation in this industry goes a long ways. Yeah. I mean, you know, 
through talking with other planters, if someone says they're working for company A and you've heard their reputation for the last 15 years, you know, you kind of know what's going on with them. So to just decide that you're going to break out and make a company and go after contracts isn't simple arithmetic. You know, you can't just line up A, B, and C and, and, and then be ready to go and bid on things. There's, I mean, putting together a proper bid is a very complicated process. And it's one that has taken me over three years to, to learn. And I still don't have it down very well. And that's, I mean, and that's putting out, you know, 10 bids a year on various things, you know, it's very difficult. Um, I know there's a company that is just fired up in the last few years where the, the person had never driven a pickup truck before starting a tree planting company. And, and the reason he was able to start a tree planting company is because of his uh, ancestral heritage and into the location that he was able to pick up trees from. And so it's not impossible, but the, if there isn't a helping hand, it's not very likely you're going to find it easy to navigate this, this business world. This isn't like opening up a coffee shop and mm-hmm. having one address and, and that sort of thing. So. Yeah, well, it seems like there's an aspect of mentorship as well that kind of has to come in because mm. it's, yeah, everything's kind of set up the way it's set up and because of the reputation point and yeah, to just do it with that integral nature, it seems like it's really, yeah, to have that mentorship. So for you, of course, with your business partner, as you're learning, mm-hmm. like that would come from him and to just kind of mm-hmm. have this sort of like pass down from a lot of these people too, who are even maybe starting to retire or get out of it that have kind of come from the birth of modern tree planting, really like back yeah. in the seventies and eighties. So that yeah. like sort of built this whole system in a way. This is a very good point. And I, I haven't seen the transfer of power in this uh, industry happen all that much. I'm thinking about um, the situation maybe with, uh, with Timberline, you know, um, Renee and Kai have taken over for for Nick and I know that that was a mentorship situation as well I believe it took a couple of years before that full transfer of power took over and 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 you know tree tree planting companies aren't worth very much money you know if you look at what assets they may have they may have some trucks they may have a warehouse um, but everything is intangible contracts you know just just because I I buy a company it doesn't mean that the new forester is going to want to give me the contracts the old owner and company mm. had right uh, but with the mentorship idea it's like one person sliding out uh, while they're sliding the you know their replacement in you know and it's it takes time to build those relationships and if you have good relationships then you will have good contracts if you don't have good relationships you'll be in the rat race of, of hunting down low bids and, and going after trees like that. So, which, which is, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, if you're only doing that, I don't know how, I, it would be interesting to know actually how many companies do have direct award and how many only um, bid year after year after year yeah. and how well they're. So. Well, and I feel like we're getting to this critical point too, because even just knowing you know, some of the companies that maybe still have the original owners or some of the, Mm -hmm. some people that have been in the industry since sort of the birth of like, quote unquote, modern planting as we know it, like that, that's really going to start to transition here in the next like decade, Mm -hmm. especially I think where, um, so yeah, we could see a very different looking dynamic in like 10 years or something, which is kind of interesting to think about too. Yeah, absolutely. It seems to me like there are a few more smaller companies out there these days um, that I've never heard of, mostly interior companies that seem to be making a good go of it. But you know, if your boss 
if you don't want to buy your boss's company and you think you can run it better than him, then you're the foot soldier on the ground on the block. You might be seeing the forester more than your block, uh, more than your boss is, mm-hmm. which is going to give you a huge benefit. You know, when you decide to start your own company and take pointers from somebody and, and do the job better than than your aging boss has been able to do it. So. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's like segue a little bit here. So first I want to just talk a bit about, you know, how you came to be involved in the coastal scene because when you said you went back to planting, of course you went south to the Kootenays, which is very like coastal-esque style land, you know, if I'm like generalizing here. So when did you sort of come to maybe the island or just the coastal area? And like, did you spend a lot of time in your planting career or kind of before being in um, like ownership role um, on the coast or like, how did that evolve for you and start? Yeah, I I started on the coast in my fourth year. Um, I think I did a fall in Port Alberni um, and then came back the next year and started a spring in Port Alberni. Um, and then I did every single year I've planted, I've started in, you know, that February, March time and, and planted till the October time, um, always on the coast. And, you know, I did, I did what a lot of people do, did the classic, uh, you know, get trained by the rookie mill. And then eventually when I felt I was good enough, I, you know, asked, had a friend who had gotten a job with my, uh, with my current company uh, the year before, and then asked if I could jump on at the end of a fall and jumped on. And, and that's, that was my birth into, into Sika basically. Um, within a couple of weeks, I asked to be a driver and the, you know, my, my current partner was like, yeah, absolutely. You seem like you got what it takes. And so I, at that point had had, Oh, probably nine, nine coastal years under my belt, you know, sort of thing. And, and then had worked the last six with, with this company and then the or last seven or eight with this company and the last three being, you know, in, in management. So. Yeah, so, so let's talk a little bit too about the differences, of course, between the coastal contracting scene versus the interior, because you've spent a great deal of time kind of in both, especially within the management realm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, like, mm-hmm. what do you what would you say in terms of those differences? And just yeah, like, because they, you know, there's so many people that tree plant and spend like their whole careers in the interior. And then yeah, this, the coastal scene is kind of this other beast. So it, it is. It's um, it's a lot more cutthroat out here. We don't have as much um, crown land. Uh, there isn't as much um, like publicly owned uh, forest to plant out here. Mosaic, I think, controls the lion's share of the island right now. Mosaic used to be Island Timberlands and Timber West, and they kind of had a north-south thing going on. Um, here on Vancouver Island, it really it predates back to the 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 ENN Railway. You know, they uh, they carved everything up and kind of sold it off privately. It was owned by Mac and Blow and uh, Warehouser and you know lots and lots and lots of companies over the years. I now that when you think about it, um, so that means that uh, I mean in the I'd say in the last six years, uh, First Nations have been able to gain a greater control over their forests or their you know their treaty lands i guess um and so in the last six years we've really seen um a lot more first nations clients kind of um come up you know we we do some work for, for the tashat for the wayat for the uchuklesit the hupakasith you know these are these are local local nations that that now manage their own forests 
Unfortunately, um, there's very few of them that are financially stable enough to do it themselves. So they will contract it out to say Mosaic. So we'll end up planting First Nations land under the Mosaic umbrella, which uh, has its own issues. Mosaic doesn't, uh, they don't do partnerships. They don't do direct award. And so we as coastal contractors are left over to fight over the lion's share of land down to, you know, you know the the half cent or the or the penny, which um, out here because we can start so early, it's great training ground for for tree planters for for their interior season. They can often be at full strength by the time they leave the coast and hit the interior and be making more money in the interior because uh, the the bidding the competitive bidding circle is a little uh, is quite a bit different over there at this point. Mm -hmm. So. We have direct award work with some of our, our forestry uh, forestry professionals here, um, which has really worked out well for us. It's kept us afloat, and it's it's our bread and butter. You know, we we provide a really good product to those people because they trust us and they want to work with us year after year. We put our best and brightest on those contracts where some of the mosaic work. You know, we can't be bothered some days to. Uh, to pay too much attention to uh, to some of the the finer points of tree planting, unfortunately. So, yeah. So, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges being, you know, a coastal contractor, which is really like a smaller contracting company compared to a lot of these interior giants? And with that being said, as well, what do you think are some of the biggest perks? Also, well, we. Uh, we're in a, from a business point of view, we're in a very uh, precarious position. Um, it's not good business to put all of your eggs in one basket. And that's unfortunately and unfortunately kind of what we've done here. We, uh, we're able to grow roots in a community um, and be recognized by, you know, by local people as being local contractors that, you know, do good work that put trees back into the ground. But these larger conglomerates that operate on Vancouver Island and throughout the interior are able, like I was saying, to buy up some of the work here just to make this training ground for their employees for the interior. So they can, they can afford to break even on contracts. They can afford to lose money on contracts just to get the work, just to keep people um, putting trees in the ground. And from our perspective, I mean, we're trying to carve out a, you know, a, uh, a livelihood here um, without having to travel all over the province into all sorts of different places. So we don't appreciate that happening. Obviously it's business and business is uh, cutthroat and, and backstabby at the best of times. So it's, it's understood, but it makes, um, it drives our prices down. Like we're, we're sitting at, I don't know, not quite, I'd say 40%, 30 to 40% below interior prices here on Vancouver Island. Um, there isn't a lot of old growth planting left out here, but it doesn't mean the planting is easy uh, by any stretch of the means. Uh, the logging practices, because it is private land around here, aren't great. You know, we're often having to walk 10 or 20 meters off the roadside over loosely placed logs just to get to plantable ground to start work. Where that doesn't fly in the interior, you know, people are planting right off the roads. It's access is, is sometimes difficult, but the land has been logged properly and it's, it's ready to be planted. Where it's, that's not often the case on Vancouver Island, so. 
Yeah, no, and with the way that the interior has been the last few years being so lucrative, um, and we've really seen a big jump in prices uh, with all the forest fires and everything. And, you know, mm -hmm. we've directly seen now this past fall, this um, effect that you talk about of these interior companies wanting to come over here and just having that extra money, having that extra manpower to, yeah, like take up some of these bids, send in some mm -hmm. of these planters and be like sort of training them per se, which really is like, yeah, destroying, you know, really people's livelihoods because a lot of us here on the coast, this is just like our living, our day job. Mm -hmm. We don't really want to go, you know, far away, like you mentioned. Um, so, you know, this is a cyclical industry. Things will dip again eventually, but there has definitely been some damage done here, I think, over the last couple of years, just with these mm -hmm. coastal contractors trying to survive through it all um, because mm -hmm. they don't have all this extra money sitting around like these other companies have. And, you know, we've even seen now a little bit because it's been so lucrative of some coastal companies needing to go to the interior just to like kind of make ends meet and stay afloat and, you know, keep some planters and whatnot, and even subcontracting from some of these bigger companies and, mm -hmm. um, you know, sort of these bigger companies even growing into these like larger entities. Um, you know, it's kind of like shopping locally versus like shopping Amazon. I kind of see it to be honest. And That's it's a little dangerous. Yeah. It's a little dangerous. And so, you know, things are cyclical, but like right now with these dynamics going on that are of course detrimental to like the coastal planting scene and to small contractors, which, you know, pretty much every company I know, I can't think of one that is, you know, sizable that's like based here on the coast, whether it's um, on the Sunshine Coast or Vancouver Island. And likely a lot of that is probably what you said of just like the availability of contracts and the amount of logging done here and, and just the amount of land all these all these pieces but you know how do you see the future um for small contractors here on the island and kind of the central coast um yeah well, like how are you feeling about that right now well right now like i it's hard for me to speak to some of the other smaller contractors um it seems like uh no matter Seems like everyone I'm thinking about the bivouacs, the timberlines. Um, I mean, Evergreen's not exactly small, but they're not, you know, Rankman size by any means. Um, they seem to all have their niche uh, carved out where, you know, they've got a they've got a bit on the coast and they've got a fallback in, in the interior or they've got a lot in the interior and the coast is, you know, just a bit of their fallback, you know. Um, I think, again, this is an industry of reputation. And I think some of these bigger guys that are coming in here and buying up the work and doing, driving these prices down are going to lose, well, they are losing face and their reputation isn't what they used to be. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, I shouldn't use names, but I will. I'm talking mostly about Zanzibar. I remember five years ago, it was in it was a point of pride to say you worked for Zanzibar um, at some point, 10 years ago, even more so. And back when I started tree planting, I had not heard of them until about my fifth year in. And then all you heard was high prices, elite planters, hard to get into. Um, and now all I hear is that they're everywhere. They, they're good. They have one or two really good contracts that they don't let anybody on that hasn't been in the company for a long time. Um, and now they are sucking up what they can get you know with low prices they've, they've taken what they they had a very sterling reputation for a number of years and in the last five years i would say i would say that 
I hear more complaints, uh, whether or not somebody's even working for them or that they've shown up in town and have driven prices down. Um, I wonder why I've often wanted to call up Tony or Gord um, on a cold call and ask like why they are bothering doing that. And I've heard through the grapevine that it's a potential, you know, they, they might want to retire in a few years. And so they're going to go and put as much money in the bank as they can and then shut it down. I, I'm not aware of any mentorship uh, that's going on with that company. Um, I know that they do have a lot of middle management. I know they have RPFs on, on staff and, I, you know, maybe they're, they're going to pass the, the torch and Zanzibar will stay around as a silviculture company with its fingers in a lot of different things. Or maybe, um, you know, Tony and Gord will just retire and that company will be left, uh, left in pieces. I'm not sure. But maybe they're going to become a holding company. Like, like Brinkman did, you know, Brinkman and Associates, who knows? So, mm -hmm. um, but what I do know is that they have a tremendous amount of work uh, across the province. And it's from everything from uh, danger tree removal and fire stands down to tree planting and brushing and, and spraying and stuff. And so they are a huge company. Um, and maybe when you get that big, your overhead is so large that you need to keep, you know, the price to planter low or, or the bid price low, but I'm not, I'm not sure what goes on. I'm not a big company, right? You know, I'm in the fields almost every day with my crews, my, my crew bosses. And I'm still the one picking up trees to keep things going on where I, these big companies, they don't have that. Uh, they have a different type of in infrastructure going on. So it costs them money to, to get that big. So I, I think it must be worth it for them, but I, I couldn't tell you for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm curious as well, you know, there's a lot of, and yeah, the coast, you know, things have been really affected, of course, by the strike and things are still tighter this year, you know, that we've heard, I've been pretty surprised at the, the lack of trees on the island, but, um, you know, for all these people, every single year it happens, right, where these planters, third, fourth, fifth year, maybe beyond, um, you know, whether they just want to try it or whether they do want to make it more of a lifestyle, you know, there's this alluring, like aura around the coast, right? And like, oh, I want to go plant mm -hmm. on the coast and extend my season and all these things. And and ultimately, you know, maybe they want to be getting in with these types of small contractors, right? Who where they're going to get good mm -hmm. prices, they're going to be treated really well. And it's it's yeah, it's more of this like homey kind of family feel being smaller, but then can't get in. Um, and maybe they end up going to some of these entities, which then of course like just perpetuates it and kind of supports it. And then you know they're you know, it's just driving like the prices down or keeping them down really out here. Like, I don't know if you think that that's had a huge influence recently or even just like the nature of logging on the coast has kept the prices, you know, not really changing yeah. at all, even though they've been jumping in the interior. So, yeah, I, I think it's be because people want to get going so early. It keeps the comp the competition quite high down here. Um, um, one of those the benefit to being in those big companies is that if you do get a job with them, they will offer you planting work from whatever, February, March, up until they don't plant any longer. And that's something a small company like myself, I can't do that yet, unless you're into brushing, unless you're into surveying, unless you're into time hanging in flag, basically. Um, then I can keep you busy on Vancouver Island in a nice spot, it, and, but you will not be making planting money the entire time. Um, but you would work longer. Uh, I, you know, it's a really hard thing to drive home to, to some people like they, they don't want to go away and plant any longer. Uh, but if they stay in one spot, they're not going to make as much money. But 
there's there's costs associated with moving around and what i want to be able to do here with my smaller company is provide 10 months or nine months year work that isn't always tree planting but the consistency equals to be about the same mm -hmm. um and that's one thing that we can offer that's something you're not going to get in a big company that says okay you want to work with us you're starting here now you're moving to boston bar now you're going to tumbler ridge now you're going to mckenzie and now we have trees in fort st james and now you you know and then you're just like whoa you know you, you're working the whole time but you're traveling which is great when you're young but you're traveling the entire province if you have family back home if you're you know children or a wife or a husband you will not see them you know and, and that, i think that makes it hard it's it's a tough job to age out of it's hard to get away from the money and sort of thing but it's hard to have a family and it's hard to do you know certain things so big companies i don't think allow for that so much if you can get into an an office job with a tree planting company then then good on you but i don't think there's many of those out there right so yeah so you know we're like we're coming up to the start of the season here quickly, but I think this is a good point. There's been so many posts. I kind of did a podcast about this earlier, just with my own sort of wisdom on things, I suppose. Um, but mm -hmm. yeah, for these planters who, you know, have maybe tried to get in, couldn't get in, or maybe settling for some of these other companies don't really want to, like in the future, even it's like, what kind of advice would you give planters um, and, you know, as a small coastal contractor, like, what are you really looking for in a planter? Mm -hmm. someone who's applying. Um, what does the timeline look like? When's, you know, when's the time of year that is best to be applying for the coastal season? Because, like, I've seen so many people messaging recently. I'm just like, you're way too yeah. late. Like, <laughs> um, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, talk about well, that. Okay, well, advice, um, I mean, advice for getting in on the coast, uh, time, time frames, you know, as a, as a company owner, I will work well into December and then I actually want a month off where I'm not answering emails and that sort of thing. So we will try to put our rough, our crews together by the end of November, the first week of December, and then forget about it. It's a very interesting thing that happens with good tree planters, good coastal tree planters, you will not hear from them until January or late December. And all of a sudden they'll come out of the woodwork and say, you know, they've got eight years experience. They've got some, some certifications, some tickets. Um, they're, they're self-managing folk and they don't feel the urgency to find a company right away and get in there. Right. So, uh, you know, we, we get a lot of returning employees with Sika, which is quite nice. Uh, we don't have to look for many employees year to year. Um, but it seems like every year, those late stage, uh, eight year, 10 year, 12 year uh, vets come out of the woodwork and you really want to give them work, but you know, you wanted to close down the job application saying months ago. So, so if you want to apply, no matter how good you are, let us know early, you know, give us a reason to, uh, to want to chase you down. Um, we've got the work, we know what we've got, but, um, but you need to be desirable. We, we don't want to be, we're not ever going to be in a position of having to hire, like hire on mass to make things happen. I know, I know, um, I know Zanzibar is, is, is hiring up quite a lot, quite a lot of folks right now for some interior uh, coastal work. And I wonder how it is for them. You know, if, if all of these applications I'm seeing coming in late season, if they're just going to be taking everybody because, you know, we've already done our hiring, we've got our core 40 people ready to go. And, and now they're looking at getting all this other work. Like, are they going to be going after the one and two year coastal rookies to fill out their seats? And, and more than likely they will be, you know, a lot of these late posts on King Kong will be snatched up by these guys. Mm 
So yeah, so make yourself desirable. And if you don't have the experience and you want to come out and learn, then you need to be tenacious. You need to get in touch with us twice a year for the spring we're coming forward. Or you need to be willing to pick up a brush saw or a chainsaw or learn a new bush skill um, to get in with some someplace. Maybe, yeah, I, that that's always very desirable to me. Somebody that comes and wants to work with us and they have other experience in, in silviculture. Because then that's another avenue that I can I can chase work down for. So mm -hmm. Okay, and let's also quash this little rumor here because I've seen some discussions about this on King Kong like this past fall. And I was okay. a strong proponent that it's like if you're a coastal rookie, you're only you only have a shot for the spring. Like don't even try gang on for the fall. And then I had some people saying, Oh no, like the fall is the time that you want to apply and get in. So like what's your take mm -hmm. on that? Because I was like so no, sure. I was like, there's no way you get on for the fall, but well, it, it's a volume thing, right? Like often, like you were saying, the spring often has, you know, uh, you know, our some of our biggest springs have been 5 million trees. This spring is going to be, you know, two and a half million or, or a little less. And so that's a small spring for us. Um, it's, it is really based on volume. The, often if we do have that 5 million tree spring, then we are going to hire a lot of people as, you know, it's a no brainer. Um, the fall, the, Nobody likes planting in the fall. The foresters don't like us planting in the fall. They don't like cutting high altitude blocks all that much. Regrowth is is slim, especially in Port Alberni. It's rocky and hot. So that's why it's harder to get into the fall. Um, the year that you came to work with us, we managed to get, I think, every single tree from, from Tocord Bay to Banfield to Port Alberni. So we had a very banging fall year. We haven't had one like that in the last couple of years, but um, that was the reason why we brought on so much, so much fresh blood. Um, and now those people like yourself and a, a couple of other folks have been around now for the last two or three years. And, you know, there are returning employees now. So if you want to get, I mean, you never know. I, I always say to, to some, some people that apply um, that sound good, but I don't have any spots for them. I say, you know, call back in a couple of weeks, call back in a week. Cause this is a job of opportunity half the time. And if somebody calls back in two weeks and I've just let somebody go for not coming to work or somebody has decided they'd rather do something else after the first two shifts, if somebody calls and says, hey, you got spots, I'll put them in a truck that next day. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I, if I don't have to waste time vetting someone and trying to get them over here and, and do that sort of thing, if I can pick up the phone and say, yeah, if you're here tonight, you can work tomorrow. And then there you go. You got a spot. So tenacity is, it goes a long way without yeah. being super annoying. Yeah. 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 Persistence is key, but like riding the line, there, not annoying the hell out of someone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you need to be desirable for sure. And, you know, references go a long way. If you can say, you know, if I can call up your last employer or 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 crew boss or something like that and somebody's got good good things to say then you're you're better off in my books if you have a simple level one you know ticket then you're you're better off in my books you know you're not just writing ei out all winter long and then just looking to hop into a truck so yeah okay well um yeah i think that's kind of like everything here so i'll just wrap up um with my last mm -hmm. question um, what is one piece of advice you would give anyone who's considering going tree planting or will be going planting for their first time this season? Oh, oh. I suppose what I wish I knew when I was going tree planting was how to manage money properly. Oh yeah, God! I'm gonna cover. I'm I'm. I was gonna cover this earlier, but it's gonna get covered on the podcast because fuck yeah. 
yeah yeah that that's a huge one if i i think i remember in my my third year or my second year i made like forty six thousand dollars or something and for a 22 year old that's a lot of money and I didn't know, I didn't even know what a yearly income was supposed to look like or what taxes were or anything. I was just a total bonehead with, with money. Um, I, if I had known that I would have started in an RRSP back to, I would have been putting at least $200 a month in something. I would be a millionaire in five years or 10 years from now. If I was, if I was started at 20 doing that, I, I would literally have almost a million dollars in the bank. So that's one thing I, I massively regret is, is not, you know, putting a little money aside and managing my money better. So yeah, do no, that. You, you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> I know, you know what, we're not the only ones, you know, there's still time. Uh, but yeah, yeah. If I, if only we had known back then. So. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Scott, for coming on here. And um, yeah, I think this is a really excellent window into like the coastal scene and, and um yeah, for anyone who's wanting to kind of move up the ranks too to hear your story and yeah, that money piece like that's coming like that it feels <laughs> it's very important for me here at thirty like paying off all my fucking debt so yeah yeah, yeah. learning to invest properly and that sort of thing so well it was a pleasure Aaron thanks for having me on I appreciate uh, you give me a platform to uh, to talk about these things.